I'm turning your Bibles to Psalm 19. Uh, Psalm 19, as we uh, again sort of in this in between um, state, uh, having finished a sermon series and and in anticipation of Advent uh, season, um, we are uh, looking at a few selected psalms, and so this morning we. Uh, turn our attention to Psalm 19. Uh, let me ask if you are able to please stand as we read God's Word together. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great Reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in these, your words, to uh, root out sin in our lives, to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. Uh, Use them to grow in us a a longing for, a desire for uh, worshiping you both through creation and through an understanding of your word. We pray all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. So I assume most of you know this, and whether you, whether you know this, know this, or know this, and when you hear this, you're going to go, oh, well, that makes sense now. I assume most of you know my house faces west. Here's why I assume you know this. Uh, you've been to my house in an evening, in the summer, or in the spring, or the early fall, when you can't grab the door handle because it's entirely too hot. Because the sun, from about 1, 1.30 until it sets, which in you know certain times of the year, is you're talking hours and hours and hours of sun beating down on that doorknob, uh, that door handle. I mean, like literally, you can't grab it. Uh, I say that because since our house faces west... Um, 
we have noticed a whole bunch of really pretty sunsets in this part of the world. We have some, like, I don't know what it is about North Alabama, but we've got, and I grew up, look, I grew up with a beach house at Edisto and watching the sunset in South Carolina, Edisto Beach, watching the sunset over the, the marsh and, and the high tide at Big Bay Creek. I mean, I've seen some pretty ones. And, and we can sit at our dinner table and look out the window. Uh, we can be coming in and out of the house. Mary Lyles has a westward-facing room in her, I mean, window in her room upstairs. And we frequently will say, hey, come here, you've got to see this. We love sunsets. We also love sunrises. It's actually kind of become a uh, family tradition when we go on vacation um, someplace cool uh, to at some point during that vacation to get up early to watch the sunrise um, because you, you just, you just got to see what it's like when you're in Colorado. You got to see what it's like when you're in Maine. You got to see what it's like when you're overseas somewhere. Um, we love sunrises too. Um, in fact, if you, were to, if you were to steal Mary Lyle's phone um, and scroll through all her pictures, three-fourths of them, maybe more than that, would be a combination, obviously, of Bingley, um, her golden retriever, or clouds and sunsets. We just we love to watch the way the sky does its thing um, when the sun is coming up and the sun's going down. And, and we, we love to just see as God's creation kind of does its, its thing. We, of course, aren't the first people to, to stare at the skies. Um, the reality is sailors have been navigating somehow by the stars as long as there have been sailors. I still, for the life of me, can't figure out exactly how this works. Maybe Ernie can give us a crash, crash course. Uh, his his love for being out on the boat, maybe he can do it. But but literally, the the pattern, the regularity of constellations and stars and where they are in the sky and being able to watch them and follow them and use that to navigate across the Atlantic Ocean, I don't know how that works, but they do. But it works because of the predictability and reliability of where the stars are supposed to be at different seasons of the year, different times of the year. All that to say, the skies have been doing really cool things for as long as there's been sky. But the point of sky watching isn't just navigation. It isn't just what an amazing sunset. It isn't just look at that cool cloud formation. The aim of sky watching is who created this? Who's the one who set these stars in the sky? Who's the one that made the sun to rise in the morning predictably, to set in the evening predictably, and to do its thing during the day and in the clouds in the sky and all of that? The, the point is, as David tells us here in the psalm, the heavens declare God's glory. When we look at the sky... We're supposed to be amazed not just at the sky, not just at the way the light 
reflects and refracts and, and ooh, cool a cloud and there's sun and there must be moisture in the air because now there's a rainbow and isn't that pretty? We're not supposed to be amazed just at what the sky does, but at the person, the, the maker, the one to whom the skies point. I, I can't help but notice the first couple of the verbs in the first couple of, of verses. Notice verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day-to-day pours out speech. That language of, of pour out is, is the same sort of idea as um, uh, bubbles up, bubbles forth. It's the same sort of concept as, as a spring. Constantly bubbling up out of the ground. And yet, I've never heard the sun say a word. We think from time to time, now we've, we've figured out. We, we, can, we can sometimes speak Jasper. We can sometimes speak Bingley. Um, Jasper, we know, has this low grunt, <laughs> this low, short, mm, which, which really means, hey, there's no water in my bowl. And we go, okay, we got you. I mean, we know exactly what he's saying. But he doesn't ever say, hey, pops, I could use something to drink. You got a snack? We got any chips? Like, we never hear that kind of language come from our dogs. And yet, David uses verbal language. The heavens declare that's, that's verbal language. They, the sky proclaims. That's verbal language. And they're in a tense that means they do this all the time. So we don't get to read the first verse and go, well, yeah, of course they did that at creation. We don't get to read the first couple of verses and say, well, yeah, I mean, in Genesis 1, the heavens declared the glory of God when He made them. No, He means they do this all the time. This is ongoing, continual, nonstop activity. They always have, they always do, and they always will. But these verbs also have a certain amount of excitement to them. I'll just be honest with you. I don't use the word declare very often. I don't use the word proclaim very I Said is usually good enough. But, but there's something eager and excited about declare and proclaim. There's something, there's a fervency there. There's, um, there's something to those verbs that goes beyond, well, this is what they said or this is what they do. There's, there's almost this excitedly they point us to the glory of God. Incidentally, the fancy theological term for all of this uh, is natural revelation or general revelation, meaning that God has revealed Himself, He's made Himself known in nature and generally to all people. You can use either one, take your pick, um, do your thing. In fact, verse 6, we're told nothing at all is actually hidden from the heat of the sun. Every part of earth, every corner of the globe, okay, sure, technically, there are parts of Alaska that are now dark and will be 
They won't see the sun again for a couple of months. I can't fathom that, to be honest with you. But that's okay, because in June and July, they, the sun won't set. They will never not have the sun. I can't fathom that either. How do you go to bed at night? But the point is, every part of creation, every aspect of creation, nothing at all is hidden from its heat. Incidentally, Paul picks up on all of this in Romans 1. Turn with me to Romans 1. Let me just show you for a second um, where Paul picks up on this idea of natural, general revelation. Romans 1, beginning in verse um, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Well, hold on, wait. How is it plain to them? Like, how, do, how does everybody everywhere know what can be known about God? Well, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. They knew God, but they don't honor God. They don't give thanks to Him. Paul picks up on this notion that God has revealed Himself. He's made Himself known to everybody everywhere in all of creation. The, the point, the aim... The intent of creation is to make us think, who put that there? And if that's so amazing to see, it must be somebody with some power and authority and for that matter, some creativity. Aren't you thankful we don't live in a world of grayscale? The power and the artistry, the glory of God and His creativity so clearly seen in all of creation. All men everywhere know God's power and His divine nature because creation tells us about them. We get this wrong. I mean, maybe we don't, but, but people get these wrong. Um, you can look back at ancient Egypt and see where what they've done is actually made too much of creation. They basically turned the sun into the God. And, and we'll worship the various create, we'll worship the sun and the moon and the river and the cow. And the cre so they take the creation that's supposed to point us to God and actually turn them into gods themselves. So there's a, there's a danger, there's a, a way that, that we have gotten it wrong. Of course, on the other side is to say, well, I mean, the reality is the sun is there because it just so happened that at just the right moment, a bunch of molecules and atoms ended up really, really close to each other and collided into each other and just happened to do so in such a way to create an explosion that's still exploding and giving off heat and light and has been for bazillions of years. Meanwhile, some of the same 
atoms and molecules, their sisters, their cousins, their brothers, their family members, collided into each other and formed the earth, which didn't catch on fire and burn and give off light for everybody, but instead it allows us to inhabit it. Right? The other danger is to make so little of creation that it's just lucky. It just so happens that this turned out like that. And it's really not a big deal. We can miss the message of creation by making too much of the creation or by making too little of it. The heavens declare, they announce, they show us God's glory. Of course, verse 3, it's a picture book. God's revealed Himself in a picture book. He uses the words of declare and proclaim. But then in verse 3, there is no speech. There are no words. Their voice isn't heard. And in the next sentence, their voice goes out through all the earth. The point is, yes, they're proclaiming. Yes, they're announcing. But it's a picture book. It's not a word And picture books are great, but picture books, are, picture books are insufficient. They can only tell you certain things. The heavens declare God's glory. Look, you can watch Lassie and Flipper all you want. And I get it. That boy knew exactly what <laughs> Flipper was saying. Understood every verb and noun and nuance. I mean, he got, I don't understand. What flipper? There's a wreck four and a half miles offshore? Southeastward? Oh, wait, we're going the wrong way? I mean, I don't know how he did that. You can do that all day long, but they don't actually use words we can understand. Creation points us to God's glory. But there's another book that God has written that actually tells us not just of His glory, but also of His grace. You can't, from creation, learn God's will. The reality is, if you have something really important you want to communicate, if you've got a message that is of, of vital importance, you'd never draw a picture. You always use words. And, and that's the reality of the second book, the second revelation that God has given us. God's, God's world declares God's gray, glory, but God's word declares God's grace. You know, it's tempting, I think, for many of us, Right off the bat in verse 7, to think the word law is just so oppressive. You know, the word law, I mean, when I hear the word law, it's the law. There's a part of you that wants to go, well, then I'm going to speed up. I don't really want to stop at this stop sign. I'm just going to kind of make it a yield sign. 
There's something in us that reacts right off the bat to the word law. We just feel like it just, it's a weight. It's a burden. It's, it's overwhelming to us. We want to rebel against it in some ways. We think law bad, grace good. Or, or when we're talking about God and His law, we're, we're picturing sort of the disappointed principle. Who's, who's always walking around campus with a scowl on his face, who doesn't like anybody, he doesn't like people, and all he wants to do is give out demerits and write people up for doing things they shouldn't. And yet, David, when he begins praising God for His Word, begins with, the law of the Lord is perfect. But I want you to notice something. For the first time in the psalm, David uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Until now, he's used God. Look at verse 1. Declare the glory of God. The, the generic Elohim term. That, that's, that's just the generic sort of powerful God. And that's the only time it shows up. And now... Yahweh, verse 7, the testimony of Yahweh, the precepts of Yahweh, the commandment of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord, fear of, the, of Yahweh. I should have read it that way. Law and love in the same phrase. Law and love in the exact same sentence. Yes, God's law, but it's, it's the law of a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. A God with a personal relationship with you. Not the disappointed principal who doesn't know any of the kids' names and only cares about getting, catching them for doing things wrong. It's a God who's entered into a covenant relationship with His people and, and loves us and cares for us. You might even say He's entered into a grace covenant a covenant to redeem to love to deliver now look we're not going to sit here all day and examine each sort of nuance and difference between law and testimony and precepts and commandments fear rules they all refer to the bible they all refer to god's word they all refer to god's self-revelation. You can, you can take a diamond that's been cut in a number of ways and you can hold it up and you can look at each face of the diamond and you might get a little difference in the way the, the light refracts through it, reflects in it. You might see something a little different here or there. You may get a little different perspective as you spin that diamond in your hand. You know, we've all held diamonds. We use that as an illustration. Like we've all held these big diamonds in our hands. Yeah, I've held the Hope Diamond. But the point is, you're still looking at the same diamond. It, it may give you a little different look, a little different perspective, but it's still the same diamond. And that's basically where David goes in this psalm with God's Word. A little nuance here and there, but taken together, they all describe the way God has made Himself known to us. Yes, there are laws in God's Word. Yes, there's testimony. Yes, there are precepts. There are commandments. The fear of the Lord. The rules of the Lord. 
But his point is, they're all the same God revealing himself in the same written word. And yes, they're slightly different here and there. But taken all together, they speak of the Bible. They're all intended to drive us to worship and obedience. Notice the adjectives he uses in these verses, particularly verses 7 through 9. Perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. It doesn't have any mistakes. There's nothing in it that's wrong or misleading. It's sure uh, in that it's firm. And, and for that matter, that verb is actually a passive verb for those of you grammar types out there. Uh, it's actually a passive verb, meaning not just that it is firm, but that it's, that it's been confirmed. It's perfect. It's sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. There's a, a moral aspect to that. Again, not just that they're right in that what they say is, is accurate, but what they say is, is true and it's morally um, consistent with uh, God and His uh, personality. There's no guile. There's no hidden meaning. There's no immorality or, or misleading aspect to God's Word. It's pure. It's clean. been refined like like refined gold uh, that's the image david uses back in psalm 12 you run gold through the fire you heat it up enough you melt it down you skim off the impurities and, and you do that a time or two that's this language of of pure the way he describes it in in psalm 12 it's not mixed with error or falsehood or confusion or someone else's word for that matter. The rules of the Lord are true. I've mentioned before my ambivalence at best about the, the concept of verbing, which in and of itself is a violation of my rule. But then the idea where you take a noun and make it a verb, like like gift is, I get it. I mean, gift is fine, but but we have a verb, give, and and I feel bad for give when we start replacing it with gift. I don't see the point of that. Um, but yet David does it here. Uh, David takes a noun that he then uh, turns into a verb. In fact, um, that's that's literally kind of what he's doing here with true. Uh, or actually turns it into an adjective, not a verb. Uh, the word is, is true. We've used it as true. We've translated it as true, but it's really the rules of the Lord are truth in and of themselves. Uh, perhaps you remember a couple of weeks ago when uh, I wrote an article in our email about uh, youth group and this notion that people could have their own truth. Um, I can have my truth and you can have your truth and that's okay. Well, not if truth itself is objective like God's word here. Would these words describe your normal everyday interaction with other people? I mean, how often would we describe our interaction with other people as perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true? Just watch the news. 
you don't know what to believe about COVID because you can't decide what's actually science and what's political. You don't know what to believe about a lot reported in the news because you can't decide whether these people are intending to communicate actual truth or sort of a nuanced truth that accomplishes their purposes may not be exactly... These are not the words we use to describe our normal interactions with other people. And yet they apply to God and to his word. Our interaction with God is always perfect and sure and right on his part uh, in our interaction with him. But notice they, the word of God is intended to produce a result. It's all fine and good if we can walk out of here and defend the Bible against attacks from outsiders. And that has its place. And, and certainly a need, for that matter, in our world today. But if all we can do is walk out of here and defend the Bible's trustworthiness and reliability against those from outside, or perhaps worse, just feel good about ourselves because we know we could if we needed to, we've actually missed the point of God's revealed self. Notice what's supposed to happen. The law, of the, because this is the pattern in verses 7 through 9. There's a, there's a noun describing God's word um, or for God's word. There's an adjective that then is used to describe it. And then there's, then there's this intended reaction, this intended result. The law of the Lord revives the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes. The idea of revival is really the same word that the Old Testament uses for repentance. To, to turn from and to turn to. And so there's an intended uh, result. It's intended to produce something in us. To make us wise. And to give us joy. We don't put joy and law. We don't put joy and precepts in the same sentence. And yet the intent of God's revealed, God's self-revelation is to produce in us joy, wisdom, repentance to revive us. You know, if someone handed you a, a book that they love dearly, Pride and Prejudice, Little Women, those are the two that the ladies in my house would hand me, by the way. That's why they so easily come to mind. One of them I've read. But if someone hands you a book, Lord of the Rings, not a book, three, but you know what I mean. And describes the beauty and the language and the, the writing and says, you've got to read this and makes a big deal about it. Would you be tempted to grab it and say, you know what? I, I think based on that recommendation, I'm going to take these books up. I'm going to take this book up and, and read it. And, and 
and just see for myself. Especially if you were told that that book dripped with honey and was finer than gold. That's the way David describes God's word. In keeping God's word, there is great reward. But this book doesn't just tell us what to do. And it doesn't simply yell at us from across the street and sort of lob accusations against it, against us, all of which, by the way, would be perfectly reasonable. They would be just and, and right. But it also calls us to faith and to repentance. Did you notice the language of verses 12 to 14? Notice, just sort of glance through there for a second. There's all this praise of creation that that point us to the one who made them. There's this praise for the Bible that points us to the one who's revealed in it. And then, and, and there's great reward. We should read them. It's finer than gold, dripping with honey. But then verse 12, who can discern his errors? Oh, and by the way, I have, I have secret sins. I have hidden faults. Or look at the way it ends. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. It's a, it's a prayer for obedience. Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. An obedient one doesn't need a redeemer. If you do all that God commands, if you keep his law, if you keep his precepts, if you you rejoice in his word, you don't need a redeemer. And so God, even in as we read this psalm that sings the glory of God's of God's perfection that tells us of, of God's glory and, and, and how we might live to honor and glorify Him, He then points us to our need for forgiveness. God's Word declares God's grace. Because we don't rejoice in His Word. We don't long for it like we do fine gold, or even less than stellar gold, for that matter. We don't long for it. We don't find it as sweet as honey. It doesn't always rejoice our hearts. It doesn't always uh, make us wise. And so we need God's grace. We need to be saved from our disobedience. Our words And the meditations of our hearts are not always acceptable in His sight. We do have hidden faults. We need a Redeemer. And creation can't tell you that. You will never hear creation say, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You need words. You need the Bible. You ever had a conversation with somebody who said, um, you know, I, I get it. I understand what you believe about the Bible. But see, I believe God is a loving God. I believe God to be a God of love. 
Have you ever asked them, why do you think that? They won't have an answer. They don't get it from creation. They don't get it from the tornadoes that pass through here in February and March every year. They don't get it from the hurricanes that just wouldn't end in 2020. They wouldn't get it from tsunamis destroying entire coastlines around the Pacific Rim. They don't get it from the National Geographic Channel where animals, you know, eat each other. And for that matter, well, animals will kill their own kind if they're lame or sick and would hinder the advance of the pack. So we'll just kill that one because that's better for us. They don't get it from creation. Where are they? They don't get it from other religions. Ask a Muslim if, a God, if God is a God of love. That concept is lost in mo- most of them. You can only get that from the Bible. And if you're going to take part, you've got to take the whole. If you're going to take God as love, which the Bible tells us, you have to take God as a consuming fire. And we are sinners in need of redemption. And then you also get to take all who trust in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray together.